Who is Jesus to me? If it weren't for him. If it weren't for him, I would be a waste of a man, inside and out. If it weren't for him, I could sleep at night. I'd be dead. I've been falling asleep at work more afternoons than not. Makes me feel like some sort of old man. You know, maybe I would have been lucky, only crippled or disfigured. But knowing me, food for ravens. I built homes with my brothers. I'd go to work at, in the morning. I'd come home. I'd spend time with my family and friends. It was a good, simple life. After talking to him, everything seems upside down. Nights are for thinking. Days are for falling asleep. I would give half a year's wages if I could just make it from sunset to sunrise without opening my eyes. As a kid, my friends never seem to get caught doing wrong. Me, every time. Uh, my father heard what I said. My parents walked by at just the right moment. I have always had my failures exposed. One morning I noticed this thing on my arm. All day I wore a long sleeve shirt and I just prayed that it wasn't what I thought. He was a brilliant teacher. Everyone knew that. I came to him looking for some sort of wisdom, some encouragement. Not, not what he gave me. And exposed I was when they burst into the house and caught me with a man. They dragged me out of the bed into the middle of the street, not even letting me dress. Honestly, I've kept the commandments, but how could you ever really know for sure? I needed to know. Good teacher, what thing must I do to enter into the kingdom of heaven? Two days of working in the hot sun, wearing long sleeves, and people start to notice. At first, I was worried about covering myself. All I had was the sheet. But they kept their faces turned so they wouldn't see me. But I could see them and the blood in their eyes. He looked at me, and even though we'd never met before, I believed he knew my situation, all my successes and my doubts. And then he answered me. They made me leave my family, my son, my daughters, Julia threw her arms around my neck. Daddy, where are you going? They wouldn't listen to anything I said. Just kept their faces turned, kept pushing me. His words entered me like a parasite. They sit in my belly and they continue to eat at me. Have you ever seen a stoning? I scoured my body with anything I could find, but nothing worked. I'd never given a moment's thought to those people. But now, I was one of them. Sell everything. He said these words with such intensity, and what I do believe was some compassion. It's awful. Everybody yelling and scrambling for rocks. They're not human anymore. You wait only for God when this happens. But his words have offered me no compassion since then. I lay awake at night in the, in the blackness, and I hear them repeated over and over a thousand times, sell everything. Everyone's an animal. Sell everything. Even the people watching. Sell. I did everything that they instructed me to do. I prayed. I wore torn clothing. I called out in the streets, unclean, as I had to walk. I did it all. 
They threw me in front of him and asked, demanded, what do you say we should do with her? They seem to despise him as much as me. Sell everything and give to the poor. Then come follow me. The third night away from them, I was in this, this camp. I returned to the town and I stood outside my house. I, my children were 20 feet away from me, but I couldn't see them and I couldn't touch them. What was he talking about? He couldn't mean sell everything I own. I'm a wealthy man. I've worked my entire life for the things that I have, and I'm just supposed to give all that up? My heart was pounding. We'd heard about Jesus, so ten of us decided to go and see him. As we walked down the streets, the people parted in front of us like the Red Sea. I would have parted with some of my money. Okay, a lot of my money if necessary. I could have purchased a new well or or built an altar, something tangible, something that I could do. I would have even supported him for six months if he would have asked. When we saw the crowd in front of Jesus, we yelled out to him. We begged for mercy. And he heard us. He came near us. He stood in front of us. And he told us to go and present ourselves to the priests. And he didn't say anything at first. Just stooped down and drug his finger through the sand and everything slowed their breathing my heart everybody just fixed on him and then he stood up and he said anybody who is without sin can throw the first stone he made them stop and become people again on the way I noticed the face of the man next to me It had come clean. We could all feel our skin changing. I noticed my hand as I was walking, and it had healed. But sell everything? I came to him looking for peace, and he left me with nothing but more confusion, more doubt. When they left, I was shivering in front of him. Not because I was cold, but just I had come this close to death. Then he turned and spoke to me. And I felt mercy come rushing toward me from so far away. It's ironic, you know. Before he died, he asked me to die, to give up my life. What kind of thing was that to ask of me? Who's Jesus to me? He's the one who wants my everything. Being caught, being exposed was a blessing. If it were for him, I would not have known that God has mercy. Who is Jesus? To me, he he is mercy. The other nine ran home, but I stopped, became still. I realized that I needed to return to him. And when I found him, I thanked him, and he just simply smiled. Who is Jesus to me? He's my healer. Who is Jesus to you? How have you experienced him in your life? And what meaning has he brought to your life? Today we celebrate Easter. It's the story, it's the 
history of God becoming intimately involved with us, amazingly close and personal to us. It's, it's the history and the story of Jesus fulfilling his purpose, finishing his purpose for coming to life here on earth. And as I was reflecting on this, uh, this passage came before me and came to my mind, Matthew 12, and, and it's, it's this passage that describes not only a bit of Jesus' purpose and what he fulfilled in this thing we celebrate today called Easter, but it also describes how he fulfilled it among us. Matthew 12:18 says, Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. And that's referring to the way he went to the cross and the way he refused to exercise political ambition. And here's what I love. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he leads justice to victory. And in his name, the nations will put their hope. You know, we celebrate today Easter, and it's, it's God's amazing compassion. We see it in the storyline of Easter. We see it in the, the acts that Jesus did in terms of going to the cross, dying for us, and rising again. But we see it in his actions even beyond that. We see it in his actions the last few weeks before this time period when he treated the up and out with gracious kindness when everybody else would despise them in the story of Easter, of story of Zacchaeus just a couple weeks before he went to the cross. And, and we see him treating a woman coming to him and, and ministering to him and anointing him with oil and other people despising that and him treating her with just such amazing tenderness and graciousness for her act of worship towards him. We see him treating Judas, the one who would betray him, who he knew would betray him with kindness, offering him the same invitation he offered everybody else to follow him, to love him. We see him taking amazing abuse, beatings. And in the midst of his throes of death on the cross, in the midst of that terrifying agony that he's going through, he has the wherewithal, the compassion, the tenderness to look down at his mother and make sure she's well taken care of. And when he's finished saying that, he looks down at the religious leaders who should have led the way in moral behavior in righteousness, in goodness, in kindness, in mercy and in compassion, but instead led the way in evil, sending him to the cross. And he looks down and sees the Roman soldiers who had spent time humiliating him in every way humanly possible, stripping him, beating him, spitting on him, saying all sorts of vulgarities in, to him. And he looks at them with this searing compassion and says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. What's it that brings you here today to celebrate Easter with us? For some of you, I, it's probably your personal relationship with Christ, and this is one of the biggest celebration days of the year for us, remembering what Jesus does in our life then and now. For some of us, it's probably a sense that we, we, we probably believe Jesus is really who he says he is, and and so we kind of think we ought, to, we ought to give him a little bit of do and come to church every now and then. And for, and for some of us, it's, it's maybe a sense of guilt that, 
that, that plagues us. We, we kind of think he's probably real, but we probably don't measure up. And so we only face his guilt, a couple, this guilt and shame a couple times. We muster up enough strength to come a couple times a year to church and, and face the guilt and shame that we feel. And if you're one of those latter two, then, then you're a person who I think is probably really wanting to believe in Jesus, but just struggles with it, just has a hard time with it. Maybe it's questions, maybe it's doubts. I suspect that probably for many of you, it's, it goes well beyond questions and doubts to simply the fact that there have been times in your life where you feel like maybe Jesus was becoming real to you, maybe God was becoming real to you and you were experiencing, but those that have been so few and far between or, or, or they haven't happened for a while and, and you start questioning yourself going, was that really God or was it just me? Was it just a trick of my emotions? Was it just the, 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 me letting go of some internal stuff that, that I just needed to let go of or you know, whatever it was? And some of you, you're here probably because it's purely an, a family day. Easter is a family day and, the, and, and attending church is the price of admission to the great meal afterwards and that's fine. But here's the question. If God is loving, and this is the question you struggle with if you're here today for the price of a ticket to dinner, and this is the question, these are the questions you struggle with if you're, if you're questioning faith in Jesus. If God is loving, if he really came and wanted to show us love, then, then why did he send his son to die? As we celebrate Easter, you may be asking the question, if Jesus is alive and Jesus really healed people, then, then why not today or why not at least more often? Or, or maybe your struggle with your faith is if Jesus, through the cross and resurrection, led justice to victory like our text says, then how can justice include starving and war-ravaged or brutalized people anywhere in the world? If Jesus is God and a friend to us, then why am I hurting so much? Or why is my sister or brother or family member or friend hurting so much? And I'll be honest with you. I'm here today to celebrate something I believe in with all of my being. I'm here to celebrate something in the resurrection of Jesus that is that, that to me I am thoroughly convinced that Jesus is alive. He is personal. He wants to have a relationship with all of us, and yet I still struggle with those same questions on a regular basis. Whatever your reason for being here today, I'm not here to convince you that your questions shouldn't be answered. In fact, I'm here to tell you that your questions need to be pursued. That you would be dishonest and, and it would be inappropriate for you to let go of any of those questions. But I'm here to, to submit to you today that maybe there is one question, a better question, that doesn't dismiss the other ones you have, but frames your search in a way that maybe it'll yield something more real, something more tangible, something more life-giving. You see, because this is the way I think about it. We, we've all had those, those decisions in life where, where we analyze them a thousand different ways. We come up with 20 different questions and go, if I'm going to solve this problem, I've got to have an answer to all these questions. We come up with 20 solutions and we just, we just can't find the solution to it. And we just get so frustrated with it. And then when it finally gets solved, we go, wow, that was really obvious and that was really simple. Have you ever had that experience where you've, where you've faced a problem like that? It's a little bit like um, 
My family loves the NCIS show. I, you know, I, I'm not going to recommend it. I'm just going to say we love it and we watch it, okay? Um, and we were watching an NCIS episode recently, and it was Denozo and McGee who were debating on the best way that they should break into this house that they were supposed to go in and arrest somebody bad in. So they're sitting at the front door going, well, should we bash it in? Should we kick it in? Should we pick the lock? Should I break the window and reach around and grab the deadbolt? Or, or should I run around the back and, and jump and fly through in a somersault through the window? And, and Ziva comes up and says, well, why don't we just see if it's open? And it was, and she walks right in. It's, you know, it's just sometimes we make things so complicated in our faith, and, and we think the door is locked, and it's really not, and we think we've answered the question, and the question today is really, who are you, Jesus? I think if we can answer that question, it frames all the other ones. And, and if you're a skeptic here, then, then you're probably hearing me ask that question, and, and, and you're probably, because we're in church, politely thinking, well, duh, that's what all my other questions are trying to figure out and get at, right? I mean, all my other questions are trying to lead to, who is this guy? And so you're going, I've already answered that question. And it sounds overly simplistic, but I'm going to submit to you that, that Maybe just possibly that's just one of those questions that you need to revisit because it might be kind of like, you know, let's just see if the door handle's open and the door's unlocked instead of thinking all these other questions. All the other questions about how to enter the house go away when we realize the door's unlocked and we can walk right in. To illustrate this, we're going to look at one of the greatest skeptics of all time that's recorded in the Bible. The church, after the resurrection of Jesus, over the next 40 days, kind of sat and did not, didn't do, do much. But all of a sudden, about seven weeks into after the resurrection of Jesus, within a matter of a week or two, the church in Jerusalem exploded from just a handful of people to well over 10,000 people. This is amazing growth. This is, Jerusalem was about 80,000 people at that time period. Maybe a little more because there was another festival going on there. But 10,000 people in the matter, matter of a couple days. And the Jews and, and Romans who had put Jesus to death to put this sect, this cult, this, this belief that wasn't good uh, to bed by crucifying him got upset and decided to start to try to shut this thing down because it was going to destroy purity of religion, purity of faith, and it might even lead to an insurrection. And so they started to persecute the early church. And we see during this time one of the most prolific speakers one of the most prolific ministers of that first few weeks was a guy named Stephen. And he would debate and he would argue and he would minister and he would show people in a way that they believed that God was real, not just an idea. And so many people were coming to Christ through him that the religious leaders decided to trump up charges on him and put him to death. And so in chapter 7 of the book of Acts in the Bible, we see them bringing Stephen to be stoned. And at that stoning, we see this intelligent young man. This intelligent young man who is the kind of guy who, if we were to put him in modern day context, he was the guy who had just gotten the full ride scholarship to the Harvard Fellows Program. He is a student of the most elite Jewish leaders of the day who are actually not just the educational leaders, but they are the leaders of the entire Jewish nation. And he's gotten a full-ride scholarship to study with the star as a star pupil of the most respected teacher of the day. And we see him standing there 
And if you were to see this in a movie, what you would see is you would see the crowds because the stoning was something that the community did. It was, a, it was an expression of the belief that this offense that this person has created is so heinous that it is against the entire community and therefore the entire community picks up rocks and puts them to death by throwing them rocks at them until they die. And so if you were to see this, you would see all of them throwing their cloaks on the, in the dusty ground. You could see him throwing their cloaks on the ground, but, but then you see this guy, this intelligent young man standing over there holding all of the robes of the influential people. And he's watching this because you see, he's a student. He's along for the day. And his teachers have said to him, we're going to go show you what religious purity is and like and what leadership is like because we're going to put down this thing before it causes many people to die because of a rebellion, because it's against what we call, what we believe is true. We're going to put this thing down before it takes many people away and makes them serve a false God. So you come along with us and we're going to show you what leadership is today on the behalf of the nation. And so this young, intelligent guy is standing there who many of you know, in fact, all of you know, in fact, many of you are probably named after him. But at this point, he's not influential. He's just the guy following his mentors to get a lesson. And that's really what Acts 7 is about. It's a beautiful story of, of Stephen, this martyr for the faith, but it's also a story of this guy who is there to see justice done against a heretic. And his name is Saul. And we see in chapter 8 of Acts, it says this. It says, And Saul was there at the stoning of Stephen, referring to that, giving approval to his death. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Can you imagine the conversations? This young up-and-coming leader who's just so proud of being a part of this program after they stone Stephen goes back and they're just bragging about how this is religious purity and how this is great. And this guy, in all of his zeal and fervor, raises his hand and becomes the star saying, I'll volunteer to lead the way for you guys to persecute this thing. And imagine... If we were to drop into that piece of history, if we were just to all of a sudden be transported back to that very day as Saul walks out of the temple with his permission slips to go persecute people, how many of us, if you were standing there, would think that this guy would ever follow Jesus? What are the odds that he would ever become the chief proponent for Christ and give his life for Christ if you were to be there that day. There's no one more passionately opposed. In fact, I would submit to you that there is no one in our greater community, whether it's New Albany, Johnstown, uh, Gahanna, Westerville, Columbus, there is no one in our area, in our circle of influence, who is as adamantly opposed to Jesus as Saul was. And yet we don't know his name. We didn't, we, didn't, we didn't know his name. We know his name not because of the fierce opposition, but because when he became a Christian and changed his name to Paul, he became the chief proponent of the gospel. He planted more churches than probably anybody has ever started in their, in their life. And he wrote half of the New Testament. So what happened? 
Let's look at that in just a second. As a result of the persecution, it goes on in verse 4 and says, those who had been scattered preached the word everywhere, everywhere they went. And so the rest of chapter 8 is these stories of these amazing stories of God proving himself to be real to people. But then Saul, he's still not a Christian. He comes into the story again in chapter 9. And, and we see him there as, as, this, as this self-righteous, driven zealot on a crusade type of a person who's not content with the fact that they've successfully driven all of the Christians out of Jerusalem and all of the Christians out of their neighboring towns, but he has to go get permission to go to Damascus, a town outside of Israel, 150 miles away. And chapter 9 says this, in verse 1 it says, Meanwhile, Paul was still breathing out murderous threats against the disciples. And he went, and, to summarize, asked for permission to go to Damascus that he might take prisoners. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, it says, and imagine this journey. He's on a horse. He's walking along with a, with a set of soldiers that have been tasked to him for his job by the, by the Jewish synagogue. And he's probably got a pack mule full of legging chains and ropes to put all the prisoners in in order to bring him back because he's supposed to transport him 150 miles back to Jerusalem. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I can imagine Saul's thoughts. Me? I'm not persecuting a me, I'm persecuting an it. I'm persecuting an ideology, I'm persecuting a religion. I'm persecuting a a, a cult, but not a me. But what he hears is, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he asks the most important question any of us can ask. In the midst of all of our questions, all of our doubts, all of our resistance, all of our pride, who are you, Lord? Saul asked. He said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And then Jesus goes on to tell him of some of his purpose that he has for him. And Paul could could have easily thought, not Jesus. He was crucified. He was buried. This isn't personal. But God made it very personal to him. And you see, we treat this question of who are you, Lord? Who are you, Jesus? Like this, like this distant theological, moral, or religious question. So we ask ourselves questions like, do you want to go to church? And, well, no, I'd, I'd rather play golf on Sunday morning. Or I'd love to sleep in. Do you want to lay down your life, your rights, and give up some of the things you currently do or think in order to follow me? And, and we, we say, of course, no. Do you believe that God is love and has good in mind for you, even, even in the midst of you struggling with sickness or your, or your friends struggling with pain? And, and, and you probably say, well, I want to. It would be really nice to. But truth be told, I'm not always sure because it doesn't make sense. Isn't it true that whether you are declare yourself a follower of Christ or whether you are here as a person who is a skeptic. You're just not sure. Skeptic sounds so negative. You're just not sure. You're honest, but you're just not sure. Isn't it true that there's this unresolved battle within us? And the battle, I'm, I'm, I'm here to submit to you, the battle is not between you and ideas. It's not between you and church. 
It's not between you and what a preacher says. It's not between you and your background and the things that happen in your background that make you doubt faith or doubt God's love or, or are not able to, even though you believe in Him, aren't able to trust that He's always going to be there for you. It's not even the battle between the background. It's not even the battle with your conscience. It's the battle between you and the person of Jesus Christ. A very real person who rose from the dead, who is alive, and who wants to know you. If you were to set aside all those things that that cause you to not trust or cause you to say, I don't know, all the questions, all the objections, all the the confusion and pride, and, and simply ask, who are you, Lord? Not not theological, but who are you as a person? That question would lead you to something very real, very true, and very compelling that would cause all the rest of your questions to not necessarily go away, but become less important or provide a context to even answer them in. You know, we celebrate at Easter not a story, We're not here to celebrate a story. We're here to celebrate the reality of the actions of a God who is amazingly intentional. Even when we're not asking Him to be. Who is amazingly compassionate. Who thinks of us even when He's in the midst of agony on the cross. He thinks of other people caringly and lovingly. Who lived like we lived so that we could trust that He knows what we're going through. And that we could trust His goodness and who rose again to be real to us in a way that He knows our weakness and knows our pain and knows our failure. Brennan Manning is a, is a prolific author. He himself was actually, uh, he refers to himself and actually lived as a homeless drunk for a couple of years. And he tells a story of, of two homeless drunks walking arm in arm. And they're just, they're, I mean, they're just loaded. And they're holding each other up walking down the street. And they're talking to each other about, you know, how much they love each other. And, and, and then one of them turns to the other and says, do you, know, do you know what hurts me? And the other one said, no. And the man who asked the question looked at him and said, if you don't know what hurts me, how can you love me? And in Jesus talking about how he would fulfill and who he would be to us in fulfilling his purpose, he says a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he leads justice to victory. And in his name, the nations, all people, you and I, everybody here will put their hope. You see, Jesus is tenderly aware of our bruises of our pain, of our disappointments, of our confusion, of our sin, of our failure, of our betrayals. And he's tenderly aware of our hopes and our dreams that barely hold on to life, just barely smoldering. And he came to live, and he comes to us today even to live that way, to compassionately lead justice to victory. We all want justice. 
But justice scares us at the same time. Jesus came in such a compassionate way, amazingly patient, to lead justice to victory in a way that will allow Him to love us and us to love Him in freedom. The story of Paul goes on. Actually, Saul still. We see him blinded by his encounter with God. And he goes into Damascus and he waits there blinded for three days. And God appears to this guy named Ananias, who's a follower of Jesus, and and says, I want you to go and pray for him. He's blind. You need to pray for him that he's going to be healed. I don't know if it was me. I'd probably walk in there and I'd probably say, okay, Saul, let's go for a walk to the top of the top of the the uh, wall, which in Damascus was very tall. And let's play pin the tail on the donkey. Let's spin you around, let you walk off the edge because that's what you're deserving having killed a bunch of Christians, right? But he goes in and prays for him. And he's healed. And then God gives him words to speak to him about his purpose to reach all peoples and to spread the goodness of who God is to people. And and Saul hears all this and, and gets up and waits three years to be baptized because he's afraid of the video. This has been way too serious for you to get that joke. How many of you have made a decision to follow Christ and haven't decided to get baptized because, no, don't raise your hand, because you're afraid of the video? No, it says, it says he got up immediately and went and got baptized. Not only did that, but he went immediately from there and he went to the Jewish synagogue where he was supposed to be going to arrest people who followed Jesus and instead starts convincing everybody that Jesus is who he says he is and people start to follow him. And we look at that and we read it and we go, Paul, don't you have some questions? Now, hold a minute. How can you change that fast? You can't go from being this far against to being that far for all in one. You need to work some things out. You can't really believe. And Paul said, no. I don't know all the answers to the questions. There's a lot of things I don't know. But I know the answer to who are you, Jesus? An answer is no longer a theological one. It's no longer a distant idea. It's no longer morals. It is personal. It is something I know. And he proved to many people that Jesus was the Christ. And that proof had probably very little to do with theology and everything to do with his own personal experience and him helping others have a personal experience with God as well. You know, we have this battle inside of us over faith. Even if we're a believer, even if we believe, we have this battle over whether God really is fully loving and trustworthy, whether we can trust Him in everything that's going on to be good to us, even in the pain of life. And what if the answer is not an ideology, but a person? What if there's a God who wants us to call Him Father? What if God didn't come as a Q&A to answer our questions, but simply sent His Son and says, you decide. It's your choice. If there really is a God, if there really is a Jesus like that, don't you want to know that? Don't you want to know him rather than the answers to your questions, the answers to the why the family has problems, why I've been through a divorce, why the pain, why the personal tragedy? Don't you really want to trust that kind of love? If, if Jesus is really as, compu- as compassionate, as loving, as intentional, as self-sacrificing, 
as the Easter story shows, don't you want to live a life fully abandoned to that kind of trust, that kind of person? Some of you may be thinking, okay, dude, if I'm on my way to Target and the blinding light strikes me, I'll believe. I'm fine with that. If a blinding light hits and and I hear a voice, I'm going to believe, okay? You know what? If you said that, you've just admitted that there's a way around your objections to a relationship with Christ. You don't need all the questions answered. You don't need all the pain answered. You don't need all the answers to the sin that you committed and the sin done against you. But there's a way to personal relationship with him without that. I want you to take a moment and listen to a couple testimonies of a couple of our own quest people who came to faith as adults, just as an illustration of what we're even talking about. Go ahead. Being little, I grew up in a family that wasn't really church-oriented. We uh, never really um, went to church. I guess it wasn't a big thing. My mom would talk about it and things, but it wasn't a... Um, it just wasn't a part of our everyday lives. So it was kind of on my own. After being uh, married for about four years, and um, I didn't know the Lord, um, but I was, I had everything. I mean, it was, it was a perfect um, situation I was married to. A man I loved. I had two wonderful, healthy boys, and I lived in Southern California, San Diego, so it was just the perfect spot to be. I'm a very analytical person, so I like to know how things work. I love to ask questions, uh, maybe sometimes detrimental, uh, maybe too many questions, but um, uh, so that's kind of how my journey started. I just started asking questions and uh, looking places. The overview of you know my whole experience was really coming to the realization that there's got to be something more life it's just for something more like to, to fill a hole that you have you know I didn't have an abusive childhood I didn't have like big gaping holes that some others might have but I had a, a, an emptiness that wasn't I wasn't fulfilled I used to think of things that I maybe did wrong or small and it was like you know but as I realized that um, you know that one sin was enough to um, separate me from God, then it was like, well, that's where I'm at. I I am there. Uh, Then I met my future wife. Uh, We were friends for a few years, and she was very strong in her faith. And um, through her and um, through some deep discussions kind of got me on the path more to where I am now. And it was not a lightning bolt out of heaven, but it was the, the realization as time went on and I was listening to the truth that, um, you know, that, that there was a God and that um, sin was something that separated us from him. Actually, Billy Graham, he had a crusade on. It was on TV. It was just a culmination of a lot of things. So it was being immersed in a church that was sharing truth, listening to Christian radio, then Billy Graham. I think that was the ultimate point in which I made the decision. And it wasn't actually even when that program was on, it was the next um, day. Through my growth, uh, Jesus has been uh, more and more of a part of it. I know at the beginning, I kind of just was looking for God and Jesus, the New Testament and things. Um, I guess I really, I didn't understand exactly what it meant to be saved. I didn't know what it meant that he, he saved us, so I kind of didn't dive into that because it was too much for me then. But now, 
I'm beginning to realize, you know, it was it was an amazing act that God um, came to us in our form. I was taking it by faith that what he said was true. If you repent, if you turn to him, and believe in what he did for me, that he would forgive me of my sins. Having God in my life is, uh, is a hope. Without a, uh, his presence, it's just things, and it's just life, and it's just you do this, you do that, and there doesn't seem to be um, reason, there doesn't seem to be pattern, there doesn't seem to be an end. I think a lot of people struggle with that because all they have are the things in life and they don't have the meaning and they don't have the purpose. Lightning Bolt didn't hit either one of these people and yet they've found a faith that is personal. And just as Paul that personal faith brings this overriding sense of meaning to their life. You know, I've, I've thought about it a lot. I've come to the conclusion that when we die, we stand before God. Or when judgment comes, we all stand before Him. He's going to ask us primarily one question. Maybe there's going to be other questions. But he's going to ask us primarily one question. Who was I in your life? Did you believe that I love you? Did you believe that I desire you, that I, that I wanted to have conversation with you, that I wanted to spend time with you, that I was waiting for you day after day for you to come, and not only waiting for you, but I was pursuing you. I was, I was setting up things on a daily basis in your life where you could experience me and interact with me, that I longed to hear the sound of your voice and know you. And maybe... Some, maybe hopefully many, maybe hopefully all of us could answer and say yes. And I, I tried to shape my life as a response to knowing that depth of love that I could trust it. But many of us, even, even some of us who are faithful in our ministry, faithful in going to church, we may end up saying, Jesus, no, I guess in the end I really, really fully didn't believe it because... Because, you know, I, I, at times I was caught feeling like I was so unworthy that, that, that yeah, maybe you'd save me possibly. Maybe you'd, maybe you'd let me serve you. But, but did you really want to know me? Did you, did, did you really want to love me? I don't know if I really ever trusted that. And, and I've heard a lot of good sermons and I've heard all sorts of stuff. And you might even say to, to God that I, I even told people to trust your love. But, but I really most of the time just believed that that was kind of the pious Christian thing, kind of the pat on the back to help us make it through a difficult life and it really was more of a kind of a hope and a kindly lie you see if we don't come to a personal answer of this question who are you Jesus we end up living this religious life that's full of do's and don'ts and full of pressure and full of shame and self-hatred and guilt and despair and and that block God's way to us He's still trying to get there, but we block him through our religion sometimes from him getting to us. And, and when it really comes down to it, the depth of our faith will be the depth of our ability to trust God's love for us. Blaise Pascal, a French philosopher, said this, and I think it sums it up so well. He said, God made man in his own image, and man returned the compliment. 
And we return that compliment so often because we make God in our own image and he ends up being as fussy, as rude, as, as suspicious, as narrow-minded, as legalistic as, as, as we are, as unforgiving as we are. You see, it's so essential that as we celebrate Easter that we really, really grasp a hold of the core meaning of this whole thing. Of how personal, how patient, how kind, how intentional, how loving, how much He proved beyond anything we can imagine how we can trust His love in all circumstances. As a supervisor and a coach and a trainer, I've worked with hundreds of churches and hundreds and hundreds of pastors in the last 15 years. And i got to tell you that Most, most churches, most Christians I know have a God that's way too small for me because their God is made up to, to fit their religious comfort zone. He's made up to, to, to fit within their finite judgments of who God should be, can be, and is. He's not the God of the Bible. He's not the living Christ that we celebrate from Easter, the one who is alive, who is here among us even now as a person who our battle over faith is with personally, not over ideas. He's the same God who changed Saul to Paul, who's here with the same challenge to us today, who would be saying to us, I know your whole life story. I know every single skeleton in your closet. I know the shame. I know the betrayal. I know the guilt. I know the pain. I know every sense of degraded love that has darkened your past. I know your shallow faith. I know how hard you want to try and how often you fail at wanting to follow me. And yet his Easter invitation to us is, I dare you to trust my love. I dare you to trust that I'm real, that I'm here, that I love you just as you are. That if you never change, I'll love you the same. That I've loved you the same in the depths of your sin and the height of your performance. He hopes that His love will allow us to find freedom. But if you never change, His love is the same. His love is perfect. It is limitless for you. Will you receive that today? Allow me to pray. And and I just want you, as I'm praying, if there's something I pray and you agree with, would you just, in your heart, in your mind, if you want to say it out loud, I'm fine with that too. Just say, yes, Lord, that one for me too. Okay? Lord, we are so grateful that you are not just an idea. You're not a powerless philosophy on paper. Lord, we're so grateful that you are so beyond our comprehension in the depths of love and intentionality that you have to become a man, to live like us, to suffer on our behalf. And even in the midst of great, great suffering that we can not even imagine, you were thoughtful 
and kind to us. Offering forgiveness. Offering relationship. And Lord, that you've risen again. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to trust that love of yours for us. I pray that 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 you would show yourself to us on a daily basis, that you would help our eyes and our hearts to see you and trust your presence. Lord, so that we can be free of religion and instead live in a love relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen.